Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Big Screen Book Club, the podcast that celebrates the loving relationship between literature and film and seeks to answer the biggest question of them all. Was the book really better? I'm Joseph Kime. And I'm Clarice Lotgrey. This month we'll be dipping into the vast bibliography of horror master Stephen King with the novel that really kick-started his career, 1977's The Shining. And we'll, of course, be pairing it, like a lovely wine, with Stanley Kubrick's 1980 adaptation, widely considered to be one of the greatest horror movies ever made, and also kind of my personal favourite. But let's go back to where it all kicked off. With King's first two novels, Carrie and Salem's Lot, having been set in the author's own native Maine, he reckoned it was time to switch it up a little bit. Opening a US atlas and randomly pointing to a location, he decided on Boulder, Colorado. The actual plot came to him during a stay in the infamously haunted Stanley Hotel on October 30th, 1974, where he and his wife Tabitha were the only two guests in the entire place. He was even served drinks by a bartender named Grady, so you can see a lot of inspiration coming from that. (laughs) The Shining centres on the life of Jack Torrance, a struggling writer and recovering alcoholic who accepts a position as the off-season caretaker of the historic Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies. His family accompanies him on this job, including his young son Danny Torrance, who possesses The Shining, an array of psychic abilities that allow Danny to see the hotel's horrific past. Soon, after a winter storm leaves them snowbound, the supernatural forces inhabiting the hotel influence Jack's sanity, leaving his wife and son in incredible danger. King was famously disappointed with Kubrick's adaptation in both how it handled its central themes and in its depiction of Wendy Torrance. We'll get into that in a second, but I feel like we should first establish our (laughs) pre-standing relationship (laughs) with King. Do you do you want to go first on this? (laughs) Okay, yeah. So similarly between us, the first King book we ever read was It. I was reading it a good few years ago and I picked it up thinking I wanted to get into Stephen King because he's the master of horror, supposedly. And it was a pretty big book, so I was getting my money's worth, really. And, oh my god, I can't remember the last time I was so horrified by a reading experience. It took a really (laughs) horrible, grim turn. Because King, as we know, isn't really the best at endings. And he really, really pissed this one up the wall. And it left me, like, with my skin crawling, feeling immensely uncomfortable. I, I assume you had a similar reaction. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is quite embarrassing to admit, but around say two hundred pages before the end, I had to just put it in a recycling <laughs> dumpster <laughs> because I could not have the book in my life anymore. I felt like it was negatively affecting my state of mind. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, I'm very understanding of the fact that, that King has had, you know, lifelong uh, substance addiction issues. And he's been very outspoken of the fact that it's often filtered into his work. You know, he doesn't even remember writing Cujo. Uh, so mm. God knows what that book is like. <laughs> but I, I'll be totally honest. Like, I I don't know where it was written within within his sort of, like, his life. But I felt very trapped within it. Like it didn't it didn't make me feel good reading it and I felt 
very trapped in his his mindset and and not a positive mindset something very like spiraling and negative and yeah as you said it's it's so casually grim and and it was yeah it was just making me feel really uncomfortable and bad all the time and I have such an you know I I have a completionist attitude to things (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like I always got to get 100% on the games, get all the little secret <laughs> lock boxes <laughs> in every video game. And I had this moment of like, if you just stop reading it, you're going to go back because <laughs> you're going to feel like you have to finish it. I need to physically te- like untether myself from this book. <laughs> so I just walked over to like the near, it, I recycled it. I recycled it. At least there's that. But I just had to recycle that and just tear it out of my own hands. And And I remember I fully threw it because I was like, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) So So, dramatic, uh, I love it. (laughs) So going on from that, I mean, how how did you feel about The Shining? Was it a different experience to it? Do, Do you feel more generous towards Stephen King now? I've yeah I I had a better time reading The Shining even though going into it I wasn't entirely convinced that I was going to have a good time I was ready to be disappointed in the same way that I was disappointed with it but from what I can gather given that King has you know he has trouble with finishing a book I was still actually quite satisfied by the ending of The Shining and I think it was a more it was a better put together story even though it's got it's got some flaws, but it's a better put together read and it gives a really great insight into what The Shining itself is. And even though King notoriously hates the film and the, the stories kind of divulge in different different ways almost throughout, um, I still think it's a pretty good companion piece to the film, to be honest, because it filled me in on a few bits that I wasn't entirely sure I was piecing together correctly about the film. I, I sort of half agree with you. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I definitely fared a lot better with this. I was able to finish it. I got all the way to the end. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I think partially it's because, you know, as I, I said, The Shining is one of my apps, like maybe my favorite horror movie. It was one that I watched very early on as well. And it was one of those really dis- like real discovery moments as a teenager of like, wow, this is what movies can do. And so it's it's such a special one for me. Yeah. And, and so like it just doesn't the book just doesn't compare. And I feel really I feel horrible saying that because obviously like King originated the story. The movie is an adaptation and there would be no Kubrick Shining without King Shining. But it's yeah. like every issue I have with the book, the film does well. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I do get that. I mean, a lot of the book um, can drag a little bit. I mean, there's a there's a few instances sort of in the first half of the book, which just is completely glossed over and it isn't mentioned in the film because quite right, it's not entirely necessary. I mean, as the book leads on, there's a few more references to to Jack breaking Danny's arm and his history with his with his own abusive father. Um, but they're not entirely crucial to the transformation that Jack makes and the 
like the horrible dread of the Overlook Hotel. So Kubrick just got rid of it for the most part. And I think that was probably a pretty wise decision. Yeah, I, I do feel like that whole sequence where he's he's in the attic and he's reading all the newspaper clippings, to me, it it, it makes the Overlook so much less scary. It becomes mm. kind of banal because you're like, oh, <laughs> like pretty normal hotel stuff happened here. Like there was a suicide, which is unfortunately quite common in hotels. There was a mob killing certain hotels i imagine not that unordinary (laughs) (laughs) you know while in kubrick's film the hotel what is so scary about his shining is that the hotel is not a place as we understand it and it digs into this thing i don't know if you know about liminal spaces it's very popular on tiktok at Mm. the moment (laughs) (laughs) but it's like this these these ideas it's this idea of like architecture where there's something about it that just doesn't feel right. <laughs> it mm. feels really familiar, like maybe you've dreamt it, but it doesn't feel like a concrete place. And and there's sort of interpretations where it's like, this is what purgatory looks like. And when I watch The Shining, it's like, to me, the overlook, the entirety of the overlook is a, a liminal space. It does not really exist in our reality. And that's why... Like the famously the the floor the floor plan of the overlook bit is nonsense. <laughs> There's no way to map like where Jack is stumbling through. It just doesn't connect. And like that amazing scene with Grady in the red bathroom, like the that room just like the ceiling's kind of too low and it, it, like the bathroom's too wide. <laughs> yeah. Like nothing about that room makes sense as a as a public bathroom in a hotel like everything's slightly off and so like Kubrick didn't need to have an explanation explanation of the the hotel's dark history because it's there in the construction it's of the set design and the, the construction of the hotel it's like you walk in and you go yeah this isn't right <laughs> <laughs> yeah I get what you mean it's 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 almost like the even when you strip it all down to the bricks, even when knowing what you know about the Overlook, if you get rid of that, if you discard all of it, there's always something about the hotel that's really, really uncomfortable. There's ever so slightly something wrong everywhere you look, and in every shot there's just something that makes you feel incredibly uncomfortable. And it's that creeping dread that's sat there in the background of the film for the whole runtime that makes it so scary, I think. Even the carpet doesn't look great. That famous carpet. Like, oh, I know. Something's wrong about that. <laughs> it's just off enough. Which I tell you yeah. what, it's actually quite interesting because the carpet in the book is very different. If I remember right, isn't it like blue with dinosaurs on it or something? Yeah, it's like very standard hotel carpet. <laughs> the yeah. there's nothing scary about the carpet mm, but it's... he describes it because like he has to describe everything he can't just <laughs> leave some things to the imagination <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I get that it's it's just I think, I think the carpet is just strange enough in its design but it's, it's connectedness right the way up just feels like it's guiding you down it into something grim something you can't predict and it's just one of those tiny touches that 
Kubrick just can't leave out. Every single item mislaid is there for a purpose. And even in the design of the carpet, it's there. Because that's like, it kind of combines with the Steadicam. As you said, it's like a directional thing. Mm. Um, So Danny's just being drawn through. And it's interesting you said, like, maybe we should talk about that you said you liked how The Shining was explored in mm. the book. And I will say it's my, my sort of, not my least favorite, but it's the thing I'm least interested in in both the book and the film is, is Danny's, like, powers because... I don't it it just it's not that spooky to me. <laughs> okay. Because it's if he was just psychic <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. but because King is such a like I don't know, he's like a a constructionist. <laughs> he's always trying to build things and he's always trying to expand and enrich in a world. He spends so much time explaining like what the shining is, how it works. Like we meet like five different people who have the shining. So it just sort of becomes to me like a like a comic book movie thing. Like it's more akin to to like unbreakable of of oh this person has a superpower and it's like because we're not in the MCU it's he doesn't get to do cool shit. <laughs> he just gets <laughs> to be sad in a hotel, but you know outside of that Especially because, this is a thing I've realised, mm. because everyone sees ghosts. <laughs> so yeah. it's not, maybe maybe if The Shining meant like, you know, in The Sixth Sense, I don't know why I'm just doing <laughs> <laughs> M. Night movies. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there's it's kind of spooky where it's like one kid is the only person who can see this. But in The Overlook, everybody sees everything even Wendy like very early on in the books sees shit while in the movie it's well in the movie it feels like it it really I don't know I guess in the book Danny also like kickstarts everything but yeah it's it's just it just it's again this idea of like there's no mystery to it because he's explained everything and in the movie, at least there's like a little bit of like a question mark over it of like, who the fuck is Tony? And the book is like, Tony's just some guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just some guy who, who shows him future shit. And he's kind of nice, but he's always very far away. Well, in the movie, it's like, what is this little demon living inside this child's finger? <laughs> What's his deal? And that feels so much more like appropriate for horror, I guess. Yeah, I I think I know what you mean. I do like what the film did with Tony in offsetting him as as just a bloke. But I think the use obviously you could you could say it was it was a tool to make the overlook more easy to understand for the reader, but I think using Danny as its way through to look at this ability through a 6-year-old's eyes is probably the best way of doing it if it was going to be in there at all. Because it's there's a level of misunderstanding that comes with it because Danny inherits it. And the only person that we see in the book that really, truly understands it and can really use it is in Miami at the time. And he spends a lot of the book just trying to get back to the hotel where he's pretty powerless when he gets there. So I, I get what you mean in that it might seem like 
it opens too many doors for the Overlook to keep it scary. But I think even though it feels like Danny ages like 15 years through the course of the book, he starts talking like a like an actual teenager by the end of the book. Um, I do feel like it doesn't... It, it limits itself just enough to keep an edge. Yeah, maybe it's not retroactively helped for me having seen Doctor Sleep, the movie which mm. uh, suddenly Rebecca Ferguson's there and she's got a hat. She's got a pig hat. She's eating, <laughs> she's eating, she's, she's eating Jacob Tremblay's soul. And I just, <laughs> that, I think that for me was like the, the full realization of the inklings of what I don't like in the book. <laughs> mm. I will say, to be honest, while we're on the subject of Dr. Sleep, I felt reading it. Um, when Danny goes into his trances and it explains out how he experiences The Shining firsthand, I actually felt like Doctor Sleep was probably a more faithful adaptation of the way The Shining works in the book than The Shining itself. Obviously, you know, Kubrick's film has its own way of dealing with it and presenting it in a very sinister and grim way, but there's something about the floatiness of the movement in Doctor Sleep when they enter that kind of trance that I thought was really present in The Shining. I haven't read Doctor Sleep yet, but I'm going to imagine that the telling of The Shining is quite similar. I felt that was that was quite faithful to what the book presents. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's It was so much more in tone with this book, which is perhaps why I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Because when they went in the dream state, it just felt like they were going inside Inception. <laughs> okay, yeah, I will. I will allow that. It is a bit Inception. Yeah. I'm sorry, <laughs> I feel like this is the first episode where we've sort of really disagreed. Well, not even really disagreed, but even had like some sort of disagreement on the book. I know. Wow, what a <laughs> milestone. <Shocking>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do we want to dive into the biggest divide between? King and Kubrick, which I guess is is how they deal with Jack Torrance. Yeah, I mean they're very different men, book Jack and film Jack. I mean, with in the book we get to learn more about Jack's past and the way that he's treated his family, has been treated by his dad, and the way that he interacts with his alcoholism. We learn more about that, and so with that, there comes more of a an attitude of maybe he can turn out the hero and do away with his demons, but Jack in the film The Shining really is predisposed to, to the evil that lurks in the Overlook Hotel. I feel like he's much more susceptible in the film, and he's much easier to coerce as well. Oh, he's just, like, waiting for an excuse in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, it was probably going to happen anyways, but the Overlook just was like, go for it. And he's like, sick, cool. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's got his excuse. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be honest, like, I much prefer that. And I'm very understanding of why King hated the movie because, you know, the, the Jack in the book is a is a sort of tragic hero grappling with his alcoholism yeah. and and it's very much a tragedy because he can't he can't escape this he can't escape also the cycle of of abuse of his father and it's all about that sort of trying to run away from parts of your life but you can't 
and that's why the overlook preys on him but i think my issue with it is because we keep swapping perspectives in the book and it goes from you know danny to to jack and then wendy and then back like while they're in the hotel it's it's hard for me because i don't think we get that straight journey from a man who's sort of broken and he's done things that he really regrets to the full demonic force at the end of the book like the the i don't know like i just didn't feel the smoothest of that transition when we're having to to look at him from his perspective his like curdling perspective uh, where suddenly he's like calling wendy like a bitch and a cunt and you're like fuck where did that come from <laughs> like this is a lot um and he does that quite early on and you could arguably say yes the hotel has f a full hold of him at that point but it's not entirely clear i think it's not entirely clear how much of him is the hotel and how much of, of it is him at any point during the book especially because when you're seeing him from wendy and Dan danny's point of view they seem quite scared of him from early on. Mm. Like, like the no, the stuff does shit doesn't seem good <laughs> from the very yeah. beginning. And maybe this is just like my fault in the way that I read it. I just I didn't have as much of an easy grasp on him as I did in the movie, where it's like, oh, like the movie is about the fact that there's like violence inside of people and you just need the excuse to to break it out and that's what a place like the overlook does it's sort of a, a metaphor for society's permissiveness of of terrible mm. behavior because it is a cycle and that's like a grander cycle it's like through the decades through the years through every you know man who ever abused his wife or children you know it's it's been allowed because that's how it's always been. That's how I've sort of seen the overlook. And so there it's just the hotels like preying on his eternal evil and just letting him cut loose basically <laughs> in a violent yeah. way. And I, that for me just makes, I don't know, it clicks and it makes so much sense. And then we see Jack as the antagonist and Wendy gets to just be the protagonist. Instead of in the book, she's a more sort of like, <laughs> I don't know. She's like, is she? I don't know. I don't know if I want to root for this marriage or not because it. I I can't tell whether it was good or bad or whatever. There's so much in that. I just I so agree with you as well because I I feel like Wendy is a better protagonist when she comes around to be in the film, but in the book, but even though they're so scared of Jack, he's offered so much like passion and he's given so many chances that it it becomes quite difficult to really understand him and understand how people really feel about him because he's so aggressive and violent when you know when that terrible side of him comes out and that's just something that was waiting in the wings so ready to jump out like you said and he's offered so many opportunities to turn it around and save his family but he just can't by the end and it's i think the overlook uses his alcoholism especially 
to lure him in because when when he comes to take the drink at the bar, I felt like in the book he took a lot more persuading. He was a little bit tougher in the book and mm. the the violence that was waiting for him there was much deeper despite having experienced a lot more violence in his past. It's much deeper in him than it is in Film Jack. The, the Film Jack is so ready for it. He takes a drink right away. He doesn't really need to be asked. But the the book sees almost the entire ballroom rooting for him to take his first drink and start knocking him back and to give in to the evil that's sat there waiting for him in the Overlook. In the film, it's much easier. Yeah, because it's just... I Because I, it's the, the ego thing and, and, you know... I will say it's worth... We sh- I guess we should mention this. Like, Kubrick's treatment of Shelley Duvall versus Jack Nicholson... Yeah, it's fucking gross. And as much as I really love The Shining as a movie, like it depresses me that she had to go through that because her performance would have been great either way. Mm. Um, and I feel like I just feel like I feel like people always really like for decades have dumped on her performance as like shrill and empty and and like a, a nothing and it's. You know, this is such a masculine movie, but, you know, this was co-written by Diane Johnson. Like, there was a woman co-writing this film, and I feel like, for me, I've always found the the movie Wendy really empathetic. And I think just because Shelley Duvall has, like, a, a kind of high voice doesn't mean that that character is, is weak. I think she reacts to the situation in the way that any person would react to that situation if like some your husband turned around and was suddenly had a bat or and mm. um was trying to kill you like <laughs> i don't know <laughs> and i think because we have such a clear line between the the good and the evil i think it just only it only amplifies wendy and it it makes her like the the core and the strength of the film and she's what ultimately saves the day is I think her strength and her love for her son and like her belief that she will escape this abusive husband you know it kind of becomes more Mm. her story while the book is is so very much about oh Jack's you know it's all about Jack and what he's suffering what he's going through and Wendy spends the whole book worrying about jack and worrying about danny um like i swear like you know most of the that's what the passages are about from her point of view and then jack in the book also like doesn't really ever have to like i don't know there's no like doesn't have to really face up to what he's done because he gets to just be a demon and danny gets to go you're not my dad and us as readers go oh well it's not it's not the dad anymore the yeah. dad was chill. <laughs> this is some other guy. Well, in the movie, it's like, yeah, Jack has to kind of face up to a lifetime of guilt and to the violence that he has inflicted in his lifetime. Mm, yeah, no, yeah, no, I get that. And I really, you know, I really echo what you said about Shelley Duvall and her performance in that when she finally becomes the protagonist of the film, it really well sort of takes the discomfort of the book and translates it into sheer terror 
by giving her the front seat and suddenly it becomes about Wendy and Danny trying to escape Jack more than it is about really learning who Jack is when he's overtaken by the Overlook. It doesn't really waste its time trying to explain to you what the Overlook is doing and why it's doing it and why it needs Danny. All you need to know is they're being chased and they need to get the hell out of there. And I do think Shelley Duvall's performance is a big contributing factor to that. And while that scene in particular, the one with the hundred or so takes, it, I think that might be the film's only detriment for me in watching it. Because I know the context of it and I understand what has gone into that scene and the discomfort that I feel watching it doesn't come from the dread of the film and how eerie it all is. It's, it honestly becomes quite guilty, if I'm honest. And it makes me feel quite bad for, you know, for appreciating a film that used the methods that it used to pull a performance like that out of it. I'm sure that it pulled out a maybe a better performance, but I still can't say that it's worth Shelley's treatment on the film, on the set, on on that stage in particular. I can't. It's so hard to condone, and it's so hard to talk about, especially when it's a film that you love. And the scene that comes out of it ultimately is probably better for it. But I can't. It's so hard to sit there and experience it. It does fill me with incredible discomfort, but probably not for the reasons that were intended. Yeah. And I, I think like the advantage that we have, like looking at it from 2021, is that we do have examples now of like directors who can show like empathy towards their actors and and work with them in a really safe and nurturing environment and get masterful performances i mean Mm. um david lynch pretty famously is not a dick to his actors (laughs) (laughs) he's quite kind to his actors and like he has i mean naomi watson mulholland drive like is an old timer of a performance Mm. um and i i think I think in general, like, we are, Hollywood is slowly moving away from that mindset, that permissiveness towards do anything for the art. Mm. Or at least, like, against the actor's wishes, and that there are still actors who make the active choice to push themselves really hard. That's a different discussion about whether that's worth it or not. <laughs> you know, but I think we're starting to move past the days of, of the director as the the tyrant because we're getting so many examples now of of really collaborative directors who who really want to like create a kind of a like a nice family on set (laughs) and we're seeing how that that doesn't impact the filmmaking the filmmaking can be just as special so like i do feel i do feel awful and i feel guilty for for being such a fan of the shining knowing how much Shelley Duvall suffered but at the same time I feel a little bit like well like we I I feel more confident that this shit's not gonna happen again yeah exactly it's it's the example at this stage and I mean I know it's a it's a very very different example but the the way that Olivia Wilde approaches making her films um with the with the like no dickheads allowed policy on set and the way that she treats her actors and actresses it it shows and even though say book smart is such a different film to the shining but 
it's the chemistry of the cast and the performances are incredibly in tune and that film was easily one of my favorites of 2019 and it's proof that you don't need to put your actors through that to churn out amazing films and i think the fact that we're using the shining as an example is like you said it's probably proof that there's been so much change in hollywood and it's taken a step away from directors being quite malicious to their actors and using them as tools rather than treating them as people it's 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 a nice signifier that we're very much moving away from that now and i think it's you know it's not a coincidence that it's happening as we're getting a more diverse you know set of filmmakers <laughs> yeah no i agree because kubrick was able to do it because of this like white man genius myth yeah. that's why he he got away with it and that's why no one ever said hey don't do that that's really <laughs> fucked up because directors at that time were basically encouraged to do this shit because you know there was so much i think there was so much myth making around filmmaking at this point because it was such an exciting time in filmmaking and everyone was mm. really wanting to push the boundaries but there were times where there's, you know, and pushing the boundaries created incredible things. And one of those things was The Shining. But in part of making that, the boundary was pushed too far. And and now with kind of hindsight, we really see that. We see that in such stark contrast. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of boundary pushing, there's a lot of difference when comparing The Shining, the book and the film, when you take a look at its ending. Now, with the ending of The Shining as a film, I've almost, I've become settled and I'm comfortable with the fact that there's every chance I'm never going to completely understand the ending of The Shining or most of the film for that matter. I'm completely okay with that. But what did you think about the big differences between the endings of the book and the film? Again, I'm sorry, I just think the movie did it better. (laughs) (laughs) Especially, this is interesting because... Um, Mike Flanagan, when he went to make Doctor Sleep, borrowed the ending of The Shining for his yeah. movie. But in his movie, it's kind of a bit more exciting because uh, Danny, adult Danny, like goes for this moment of self-sacrifice. Like he's kind of snapped out of it long enough to say, "Let me go." blow the boiler up right i'm remembering this movie right yeah yeah yeah, you're all right (laughs) and so i was expecting that going into the book but it's not quite that exciting in the book in the book it's like jack's about to kill danny and danny's like you forgot one thing the boiler (laughs) (laughs) and so jack the overlook as an evil demonic spirit this is a literally like hundreds year old demonic spirit within a hotel thing situation the demonic spirit forgot to do a daily chore it was (laughs) felled by an incompetent caretaker yeah it was felled because it's little like alarm timer didn't go off and it really should have got one of those (laughs) habit apps that i have in a great because it reminds you to do shit uh, which is just so much less exciting than a even the Doctor Sleep movie ending, where it's this moment of like quite romantic, like self sacrifice, or the movie, which is just that zoom in on the photograph, 
where he's always been the caretaker because that line is in the book and they don't really come back to it. <laughs> really. But in the movie, it's so cool. And for me, it's just, it relates to this idea that it's all cyclical. Like, all violence is cyclical. And so, yeah, like, I don't think the photograph is literal, but I think in Jack's death, like, he becomes absorbed into the hotel and he becomes just another one of its ghosts because with, like, Grady, there's been so many before him and there'll be more after him. It's mm. just... Because also the shining still the overlook's still there at the end of the movie, which I think is creepier. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think what makes it creepy to me actually, I think, is the hedge maze. It makes me feel really grim, and there's just something about it. Like, it's something that you can just get lost in, even not recognizing it. And obviously, the maze doesn't really appear in the book. It's replaced by the by the hedge animals. Which is a whole, which is a whole thing by itself, but I feel like the addition of the maze itself, almost as a symbol as of the human mind, is a really, really clever addition. And the fact that Danny's able to outsmart Jack in this representation of, of maybe even Jack's own mind, I think is completely brilliant. Yeah, and yeah, hedge mazes are creepy. They are like... just generally. I always find, this is slightly off topic, but it's just, you're in a hedge maze and suddenly a child will just burst out of the, like, burst out of the leaves. And I feel Ugh. like that's, watching The Shining is that tension of just, like, some some person's fucking child is just going to go, meh. <laughs> the Shining's dread is exactly the same dread that you'd feel yeah. worrying that you'll be approached by a child. Being approached by an unaccompanied child in the hedge maze <laughs> where you're like, where are your parents? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing why don't you just follow the rules of the hedge maze don't go through the hedges that's not part of it <laughs> but yes i i agree it's so much it's such a cleaner more elegant visual image and like i did struggle a little bit when the the lion hedge <laughs> was attacking dick <laughs> it's like just trying to imagine it in my head and it's going like Rawr. yeah it's hedge maze lion honestly it's it's just it's just made of shrub it's not you just push it off it's shrub yeah and i get it's quite scratchy i've been scratched by a hedge maze yeah but... i suppose but that that's it isn't it it's just a bit of scratch yeah it's not really gonna kill you it certainly tried. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that it is, it is interesting to me that like the differences in the in the like the the ghosts between the book and the movie, mm. because like the book doesn't have the twins. I maybe I didn't realize that. Yeah, I mean, they didn't really show up. I'm gonna assume that they were the daughters of. Grady or the previous caretaker but yes. it's it's interesting that the girls and a hell of a lot in the film take the axe the carpet a lot of it they're all of Kubrick's design I, I couldn't I wouldn't believe you know I wouldn't doubt if King was ever you know jealous of the iconography that sprung from the film of The Shining because a lot of it just isn't there in the book yeah, or it's, like, very truncated. I mean, this is such a great example of why I prefer the movie. Is 
Well, first off, I've been calling him Blowjob Bear for a long time because there's a musical, there's a Shining musical where there's a song about the Blowjob Bear. Wow. And he's like, it goes something like, The Overlook, Blowjob Bear! (laughs) The Overlook, Blowjob Bear! Um, So I just, and I think I've always thought he was a bear, uh, but the book, gives him a whole backstory he's actually a dog and he he's just a furry in the book and like mm. that's not scary <laughs> it's just like oh no a furry <laughs> <laughs> I don't well in the movie it's terrifying because there's no context to that scene she's just walking up the staircase and there's just like a a, a bad dog man <laughs> <laughs> giving some old rich dude a blowjob and they look, they both look up at her, at Wendy, with, a, with the face of, excuse me, ma'am, <laughs> we're in the middle of something. Can't you see and we're quite busy? It is like the pure, like, social awkwardness, confusion on top of the <laughs> mortal terror. It's just, it's perfection. Well, yeah, in the book, <laughs> it's just, this guy's just a furry. I don't I don't know what to tell you. It's just not it's not scary. It's too normal. We yeah. have the internet now. We're too <laughs> we're very aware of furries. We've seen <laughs> no it mystery now. to them. <laughs> but I, I get what you mean. It it gives this character slash being a um too much to go on and it gives it so much that it no longer becomes scary and I think that's a habit the king has throughout the book of overly explaining things and hand feeding the reader a lot of things almost because it feels like he forgot to mention it earlier it's there's a lot of moments where it's just a bit overstuffed and even though the book is much shorter than it and coming in at only 500 pages in my copy it still has a tendency to feel a little bit draggy especially around the end of the first half where it just becomes a bit exposition heavy and it kind of wastes your time really yeah i just don't feel like every ghost has to have a backstory Mm. like you know it's not like the avengers (laughs) (laughs) oh how did bathtub woman become bathtub woman like, I think in the movie you understand all you need to know about Bathtub Woman, which is that she died in a bathtub. Mm. <laughs> That's all Give me that, that cinematic you, yeah. universe, please. <laughs> well, don't we kind of got that in Ready Player One, unfortunately. <laughs> Very sadly. <laughs> but, and I realise that, you know, I think it's different conceptions of what horror is and, and what makes us scared. And for mm. me, on a very personal level, it is things that just don't make sense, or things <laughs> that feel really unexplained and out of context. It's the most terrifying thing to me. While the second, the second you give a ghost a backstory, I'm like, not scary anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's like in um, the Woman in Black. Sorry, this yeah. is like this is another example. Woman in Black, which creates such a mystery around this this figure, this widowed woman haunting the hallways. And then it's like, oh yeah, a kid drowned in the mud. But the kid's just behind this door and she's on the other side of the door. 
And you're like, well, it's not, that's t- it's not scary anymore. Just open the yeah. door. <laughs> She's trying to search for her dead kid. There's literally a door between the, you. Just, <laughs> it's, not, it's not scary anymore. So I think that speaks a lot to, to my personal conception of horror, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. They're, they're two very different ways of approaching horror. I think there's a there's a creeping dread in the book, but the dread in the film is there from the start, and it's something that you just can't put your finger on, and you can't detect what is wrong, but you know something is. And I think that's what freaks me out the most about the film. Yeah, and that, just because it's like, who's, who is the blow, who is this blowjumper? <laughs> I need his name, and I need a backstory now. Like, that keeps you up at night. And if they told me who Blowjob Bear was, I'd be like, oh, okay. I mean, we've read the book now. We can rest easy. That's it. Yeah, but now he's yeah he's retroactively not as scary. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was always the scariest scene for me of the entire film. Because mm. it's just Wyatt. <laughs> we finally got the answer of who is the dog man. We found out that he is... A dog man. Yeah, and it's just quite sad. He's just like, he loves this guy, and the guy is treating him like shit. I'm like, that's really sad. I want to be friends with him. Mm. <laughs> I feel bad. God and all bless these the people are laughing there. at him. Because he's just a dog to <laughs> please this man he's in love with. And it's like, baby. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> That's, that's the most sympathy for Blowjob Bear I think we'll ever hear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on to some of the questions that you guys sent in. Um, thank you very much for sending in your questions. We really appreciate it. If you want to get involved in the next episode of the Big Screen Book Club, give us a follow over on Instagram and Twitter at BSBookPod and we'll put out a call for questions. You can ask them there and you might get featured on the pod. Um, Our first one comes from Will Driver, who asks, do you agree with King saying Nicholson shouldn't have been cast so as not to make the descent into madness less obvious? I feel like I know what you're going to say to this one. Oh, Jack Nicholson is perfect. Isn't he? Isn't he? (laughs) No perfect. Every scene just... But yeah, that goes, you have to have the reading of this Jack Torrance is just dying to kill his family mm. <laughs> just put a put an axe in his hands and he will go 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 like that's his <laughs> mentality and and yeah it's the fact that i love the scene where he's trying to console danny and he's like i'm not gonna hurt you and his face is like telling a completely <laughs> different story yeah. it's just brilliant incredible acting Mm, it's just so brilliantly twisted and to be fair the Kubrick stare comes along pretty early in this film and he just hits the nail on the head perfect he's phenomenal right from the start because even though his sort of twisted descent is a little bit quicker in the film than it is in the book you can still see every step and you can still see every like creeping moment that he makes that transformation and it's so uncomfortable and I don't think anybody has has perfected the psychopath quite like Jack Nicholson has in the last 20 minutes of The Shining. And I will say, going back to this idea of of the movie, in my mind, being very empathetic and sympathetic towards Wendy and being Mm. from her point of view, I would say his performance in that final stretch, like, he's really mimicking, like, an abuser. He's because 
he's so mocking in the way that he speaks mm. to her when i mean we talked about this before we were recording when she's talking about well, we need to get danny away as soon as possible and he goes as soon as possible, <laughs> soon as possible? and like it's kind of you know it's sort of funny to watch but like when you think about it it's like god yeah that's such a like an a, a thing that an abusive husband would say to, to mock his wife and to belittle her mm. but it's placed in this context of he's you know he's a psychopathic murderer and i think to have those layers to it it gives the movie a sort of slightly different narrative than the book because i think the movie is just it i've sort of already said this but i think it's about wendy trying to escape this abusive marriage yeah yeah no exactly i mean he just he takes such a horrible turn and he's so willing to be horrible to wendy from you know from the first moment that she interrupts him while he's writing he's proper horrid but the oh, twist yeah. that he, oh, the twist that he takes is so incredibly amplified and unbearably horrible i can't imagine anybody else taking the role and even though film jack is so different from book jack i still don't think i'd have it any other way you know what i would love mhm you you take Jack Torrance, <laughs> and you take um oh, fuck I remember I've forgotten the character's name Daniel Day Lewis in Phantom Thread. <laughs> you add drop them so they arrive in a room at the very same time so they're both interrupting each other. Oh what a dream! Let's see what happens next. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the reality TV that I'm super into. Because it's basically the same scene, <laughs> with, <laughs> with slightly different like one scary and then like. One's kind of, like, horribly erotic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. We've actually got another question from Will. Um, thank you very much for your two questions. Um, he asks, also, given the changes between the source and the film, didn't Doctor Sleep do an amazing job of blending the pair? I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but I have to say, I adore Doctor Sleep, and the things that it did with its source material were just fantastic. I feel bad now because I don't want to be like, no. Oh, no. <laughs> not a fan. No, I unfortunately was just not. I mean, we could do a whole other podcast about mm. this and maybe we will. I unfortunately just didn't. I think it was a combination of Stephen King's work, like having his voice be so strong in that movie and then trying to combine it with Kubrick, where we've just, you know, discussed for the past hour about how different their visions are mm. um and then also trying to add mike flanagan's vision into that which is very distinctive so it's like three different voices all fighting for each other mm. and like yeah and again i i think mike flanagan's like i love his vision but i think again it's another thing i'm I'm not quite on the same wavelength as him <laughs> so i've always i struggle with a lot of his stuff because it's it's again too explainy <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah, all the ghosts they also all get backstories and they mm. get a little sob story each and it's like well now I'm just sad for the ghost <laughs> I'm scared of it I just feel bad I just want to give it a hug I can I can sympathize with that I mean it's a pretty mad cocktail it's one that for the most part worked for me it's like you said it's a lot of different voices but I think that Doctor Sleep did a really good job of taking the stuff that was left out of the film adaptation of The Shining that was left in the book and repurposes it really nicely to cap off Danny's story. I'm quite happy with the way that 
it all came together. And while Doctor Sleep had its had its problems, and it was it was a little bit mad to even attempt combining King and Kubrick's visions together. I do still think it was quite impressive the way that it was able to take The Shining's ending and sort of manufacture it for Danny. I will say Rebecca Ferguson was great. She can steal my shine anytime she wants. Well, I'm I'm really glad that we can agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if that made sense, but I tried. Because <laughs> she's just great. We've actually got, we've got one more question here. I know that we've talked about it before, but I want to get a completely laid out idea of what your vision of this is. Ali Barry quite simply asks, what is the ending really about? I really want to pick your brain about it. So the movie. Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk movie. Yeah, so I think this is why I like the the movie so much is that it both it like happens in time and out of time. I think mm. because there's such a blending of of Jack and Grady that you get the sense that this just keeps happening. Just yeah. keeps happening over and over and over again, and but this is the weird thing. Like it's it's odd that the book introduces the idea of like the dual figures of the two caretakers who go mad, and kill or try to kill their families, and it suggests that they're the only two instances. I feel like in the movie it's a little bit more ambiguous mm. that perhaps this just keeps happening over and over and over again. And so, like, the the overlook is sort of a like a whirlpool, <laughs> yeah, of of or like a black hole of violence, and it just kind of sucks things in, and it just you get trapped in this cycle, and it's it's this forever. And so that's why at the end of the movie, Jack is part of the photo, and yeah. it's not really meant to be a literal like, oh, you know. He's the overlooks a time machine and he keeps going back and doing the thing. It's I think it's more no, it's it's because he's become absorbed into that 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 ever spiraling cycle of violence and he's mm. just another pawn like Grady, like all these other ghosts. And and the fact that the overlook is still there at the end, it suggests this is just gonna happen again. Somebody else is gonna be sucked into that and it's just gonna keep happening and keep happening and keep happening because like that is the world. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the world, baby. It's just a cycle of violence. Never See, ending. Exactly that. Exactly. I was it's it's like you said earlier, it's perfectly representative of the cyclical nature of violence, especially when it comes down to the overlook and the sufferings of the people that had the misfortune of entering. It's it's I get what you mean in that it's not meant to be taken literally, but it's I think the ending perfectly hits home in a way that the book didn't quite in saying that Jack is not the first and he definitely won't be the last and anything that enters the Overlook is doomed in a way. Because I, I guess in the book there is a breaking of the cycle of violence but I don't know where you that apply that to like real world. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's hard yeah. to sort of see that as a metaphor for anything because ah you break the cycle of violence by letting your demon father forget the boiler 
That's it. Like, it, it doesn't have quite the, like, nice twist <laughs> that the yeah. movie does where you're like, aha, it is the, the hotel is just society, blah, 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 blah. Well, the book, it's like, no, the hotel is actually like a demon that's trying to steal Danny's shining powers, but it's also very forgetful. Mm. All you have to do to break the cycle of violence is not be good at your job. Yeah, it's to hope that your <laughs> abuser just, like, forgets to do some shit that ends in their death. <laughs> it's like, I don't feel like that's a very promising message for people. <laughs> yeah, nice one, Stephen. Cheers for that. So, now that we've devoured The Shining, it's time to reveal the next book and film that we'll be covering on the podcast, and it's more of a recent favourite. Next month, we'll be covering Alex Garland's hypnotic sci-fi horror, Annihilation, starring Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Lee, Gina Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson, and everyone's favourite, Oscar Isaac. Yeah! <laughs> and he's got a big beard in this, right? Does he? Oh my god, I forgot. Am I confusing him with... beard? Does he? I feel like I'm confusing him with Ex Machina Isaac. I, I get bad at that. I'm... Maybe I might be wrong. I'm rem- I am remembering the beard. It's all right. <laughs> we'll find it's out. We'll present. find out. <laughs> be our first topic of discussion next <laughs> month. And we'll also be discussing the book that it's based on, written by Jeff Vandermeer, the first in his Southern Reach trilogy. The book is available in your local bookshop, on your e-reader, or as an audiobook, and you can stream the film on Netflix. Perfect. Unless it leaves Netflix within the next month. Um, oh, apologies um, if it does that, because, you know, Netflix, you know. Oh, I'm going to write some very strongly worded letters to Netflix if they cut Annihilation before the podcast episode. I'll be so upset. <laughs> They're like, we discovered that there was a, an extra revenue stream for this. So <laughs> could make everyone listening to this podcast pay for the movie. Yeah, sounds about right. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Big Screen Book Club. Do keep up to date with us on Twitter and Instagram at BSBookPod. I'm Joseph Kime. And I'm Clarice Lockery. And we will catch you in the next one. 